The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So this being our last class, I want to sort of sum up what we've covered. This I find this such a powerful intersection of what we have found, whether you meditate, whether someone meditates or not, I think it's probably relatively safe to say that every human being bumps into, uncovers, and, and hopefully develops some real confidence in this beautiful capacity of love. And I'm talking not so much of an ordinary kind of love, more of a spiritual kind of love, love for its own sake. It's not a negotiation like, I'll love you if you love me. We can't help it. Like when that spiritual love or metta, as we sometimes say, when it has the flavor of compassion, it's karuna, when it's appreciating what's beautiful and good, it's called mudita. And when it's expressing this unshakable balance, it, that quality of the heart is called equanimity or upeka. So these boundless qualities, the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, they're really how we get a sense of the possibility of freedom. Because even as an unpracticed person, if for some reason the particular circumstance of our life evokes this spiritual love, and we're just there, and the heart is generous, and we're not trying to be generous, we're not trying to be kind or compassionate, it's just moving naturally, radiating naturally, and if, if that mind, if that person had the wherewithal to notice, they would notice, this feels good. This is really functional. This is a functional way for me to be showing up in this moment, right? The ways I might speak or not speak or act or not act, it all is relatively clear. But not because I've cognitively figured out how I should be acting. So love is... This is, you know, as a Buddhist, as somebody following these teachings from the Buddha, these attitudes or emotions, qualities of love, basic friendliness, basic goodness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, they're really the only attitudes, emotions we need to be a functional human being contributing to our own well-being and the well-being of others. And the telltale flavor of those qualities are their boundless, expansive, and in a sense, unflappable, unshakable, or inclusiveness. And this is really, it, it kind of paints this picture of the whole path from constriction, tightness, to release. And this in a way can be our barometer. Now even the first step, like at the beginning of the sit, I just encouraged us to reflect on our intention. And like the intention that it matters, like I've got this time, I'm already signed up, I'm here online doing this class with other people, why not? And just sort of taking responsibility for the quality of my own heart and mind my life, okay, I'll find a wholesome intention for being here 
and doing this meditation. I'll aim my mind in what it seems to me to be a skillful direction. I'll keep that in mind. And when my mind veers off in a direction that to me feels not helpful, like I start to blame or vent or get angry or get obsessively needy or uh, wanting, wanting, craving, craving. When I notice that, I see, oh, I'm getting tighter. This is not the direction toward release, toward anything I'm interested in. And we aim again toward the intentions and qualities that we find trustworthy. And when we get some competence in terms of taking care of our mind internally and taking care of our relationships out in the world, we start to feel that, you could call it a kind of Buddhist self-esteem, like, I know how to take care, I know how to live in harmony with other human beings. I know how to take care of my heart and mind, so I'm not so afflicted by the unwholesome qualities of mind. So we that, that first kind of radiance or boundlessness is, in Buddhism we might call it the bliss of blamelessness, or the happiness of non-remorse, where we have a sense of being able to take care of ourselves. And then as we more specifically <coughs> gain confidence in the quality of love, and really train the heart to abide in that, whatever mechanism or form that we find helpful. Because, you know, as many of us have practiced in the Vipassana Insight Meditation centers and retreats, you know, we've learned different ways of igniting or rediscovering that capacity of my heart, this heart, to be wishing well in a radiant, generous, stable way. So some people might bring particular people to mind and use phrases. And that can be very helpful. And often, most of us need initially some kind of form, some kind of structure, which is basically my confidence that this heart is capable of being loving. And then we act on that remembering that this heart is capable of being loving. So we bring somebody to mind. And of course, we're going to start with somebody who's relatively easy. Okay, there is that benefactor, that person who was really there for me. Or there's my cat. Or there's this little boy or little girl who lives in the neighborhood who I see playing. Or the squirrels in the backyard or the chickadees at the bird feeder. There are these beings. And when I remember them, and when I bring them to mind... I notice this well-wishing, oh, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering, may you live your life with ease. And that, without even needing the words, but totally okay to use the words, to help the mind, because what we're really doing is we're keeping that beautiful emotion, attitude of love in mind. And the phrase and the memory or the individual we're bringing to mind is a support for awareness to be aware of the meditation object, which is that generous quality of the heart. And so in, in, with the reality of suffering, our own and other people's suffering, then the quality of love is 
what we call compassion, that fearlessness, that willingness to be close, and in a sense to be touched, but not weighed down by the suffering. Because the mind is attending to the wish, whether it's to myself or to others, may this heart, may your heart find its way in these difficult circumstances. May you realize the cause and the ending of suffering. Even with these difficult circumstances, may your heart be free from suffering. That's the wish I actually have for myself and another. I wish that every being who's suffering finds some way to be free of that suffering. And if they can just, you know, they're cold, they could maybe just put a sweater on. But some kind of experiences of suffering aren't easily solved, right? But that wish, may you be free from suffering, really comes from the deepest wisdom that there is a way out of suffering that doesn't depend on conditions. Now, I'm not saying that that confidence is perfect, but that's the confidence we're developing. Because that wish is very powerful, even with this difficult situation, even though you're in the dying process, may you be free from suffering. May you realize the heart, the mind, that isn't clinging to anything, including the pain or the loss of the life or whatever might be unfolding for that person or for oneself. So I'm painting a picture of the whole path and how important the Brahma-viharas, these qualities of love are, because it's teaching the mind, teaching the heart, it's reminding the heart in a way that it can, it can go from a narrow and tight way of being and relating and let go of that grip and begin to trust. And the thing about love in particular is it feels so right. You know, when we bump into moments where there is a natural, generous kindness, generous compassion, generous joy and equanimity, you know, and we have the wherewithal to be aware, to be mindfully aware, what is revealed is, oh, this feels right. I trust this. We don't have to try to trust that quality of the heart. It's trustworthy and it's functional. And so the the mind is naturally inclined to abide because we very quickly, when we reflect on it, realize it's less about me doing it, doing the metta, doing the loving-kindness practice, even though initially we might you know, need to bring somebody to mind, repeat some phrases. But when it's actually is the emotion, the quality of the mind, then really practice abiding, like resting, and and be, you could say being that love, being that compassion, that tenderness, that is willing to say, yes, this is how it is, and I care, and I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of my suffering, I'm not afraid of your suffering, because I'm really grounded, I'm really attending to this beautiful wish that I trust, 
may you be free, may I be free, may I find the way where this heart is not burdened, not oppressed by these conditions. We really take aim and learn to trust and abide because that generosity is really protecting. Remember, it it always matters what we pay attention to. So no matter what's going on in terms of, let's say, outward, outside conditions, circumstances, there's what's always in play is what is the mind, what is wisdom going to choose to pay attention to in this moment? So we're learning that the mind, wisdom is learning to be skillful by paying attention to the generosity of the heart. And then in that healing that happens and the deepening trust and the wholesomeness of abiding with that kind of universal love, then you might maybe notice the invitation to notice the space of the mind, the space that's filled with love, but now turn the attention from the goodness of that love, that well-wishing, to that it's, it's filling, in a sense, this space of the present moment, and then keeping that space in mind. And this, this really, um, the bridge is really the quality of love we call equanimity, upeka, because it has a very cool and balanced tone to it, just like compassion has a particular tone, and basic friendliness, basic goodness has a particular tone, Appreciative joy has a particular tone. Equanimity has a particular tone. Venerable Analio, this uh, wonderful German monk, wonderful Dharma teacher, um, likens equanimity to the coolness of the full moon, where metta might be the sun at noon and compassion might be the sun at sunset. And mudita, appreciative joy, might be the sun at sunrise. Equanimity has more the flavor of uh, full moon. But in any case, that the balance of equanimity and 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 resting and the expansion, the boundlessness of equanimity, things are the way that they are. Everything unfolds according to causes and conditions. May all beings be at ease, and I know that how things unfold will be according to causes and conditions. Not my wish that all beings be at ease, but still, I wish may all beings be at ease. So this is the flavor of equanimity, and then into the space of the present moment, and into noticing the knowing, oh, this space of the present moment, is characterized by knowing. That's how I know the space. There's knowing. So to keep knowing in mind and to see the even knowing, seeing the impersonal nature of that, that everything has the nature to come and go and is not self. It's stuff that comes and goes and is known. This is being known. This is being known. So now we're, the wisdom is noticing the impersonal nature, the not self nature of that space of knowing, and it's keeping the impersonal nature in mind. 
So the boundlessness of love really supports the deepening of insight of wisdom, which is basically the mind is realizing the mind free of clinging, moving in the direction of realizing the mind that isn't in conflict with anything, isn't holding to anything, right? But it's step by step. And this is one way to for us to reflect on this. Now I want to spend a little time uh, sharing some of the questions uh, that people brought up um, and sent in. And some, some I covered already, but this is um, from one of the people in the class. And they mentioned that they just finished a retreat with Sharon Salzberg and some other IMS teachers online, Insight Meditation Society teachers. And uh, throughout the retreat, this person writes, throughout the retreat, they really emphasize evoking metta and the other divine abodes by using standard phrases and also by wishing it to different categories of beings, from easiest to hardest, self, benefactor, friend, neutral person, etc. The rationale was that even when you don't feel anything strong and whole, the phrases will keep your mind engaged and will help strengthen your concentration. And the person then goes on to mention that, and that really worked for them. Um, yeah, and I've done a lot of practice that way. That's certainly how I was trained um, in a lot of the retreat practice that I did. And there's a lot of value in having that form. And in a way, this person's question is, uh, it just brings up this more general question about you know, as a practitioner, what is my relationship to form? Because we we need form in our meditation and just generally in our spiritual practices. We need structure, like even the fact that we're gathering together via the YouTube live stream tonight. That's our form, where we're, you know, a hundred of us or whatever it is that we're connecting in this way and that we have a structure to the class. You know, we have these teachings from the Buddha. So there's all kinds of forms that we use. We sit up, and you know, often, unless for whatever reason it works better to lie down or to do walking practice, but one of our basic forms is to sit up. And in loving-kindness practice, this happened many centuries after the time of the Buddha, but where it got written down, but this very systematized, way of doing loving-kindness practice, as this person describes, where you work through starting with the easiest person, onward to more challenging people, and then eventually to all beings, and you work through the different flavors of metta and loving-kindness and compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, and it even goes beyond where you're working with all directions, like I suggested in the guided meditation instructions. So the question is how to skillfully engage form without getting attached to it or misusing it or holding on to it when it's no longer needed. It's like that, uh, I think it was in a poem by a Zen teacher about the finger pointing to the moon. And the form is like the finger pointing to the moon. 
So we always want to remember as we bring somebody to mind, let's say we're doing it in that more systematized way, and we're starting with the benefactor or the easy person or starting with herself, and then over time moving to other categories of people that would be more challenging to have compassion or loving kindness for. We have to remember that what we're doing with this activity, bringing someone to mind, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. Something like that might be a traditional rendition. The whole point is to recall and gain confidence and abide in what has nothing to do with that person or that being or those phrases. So the phrases and the memory or the image, mental image of the person is a useful, can be at least, a useful, skillful support for the radiance and the abiding, the resting and trusting into that emotion. And again, as Venerable Analio says, from doing the practice to becoming that metta, that compassion, that appreciative joy and that equanimity. And it's really the flavor, like when we learn to keep the attention there, that's why it's such a healing space. You know, in the tradition it's called the temporary liberation of the heart. I think I mentioned that in a previous week. Because we're really learning to let, like through the, how we're paying attention, what we're paying attention to, we're we're not allowing anything else to come into the mind because we're keeping that generous, boundless quality of love in mind. So then what the mind realizes is it realizes the mind without any defilements, temporarily at least. And that's very healing. And its experience is very light and beautiful. So thanks for that question. And then another question came in. Um, this has to do with the article I sent out today. I'm sure many of you haven't read it yet, but I sent out a link to uh, a Dharma talk by Guy Armstrong who wrote a very good book on emptiness. So the Buddha's wisdom practices and teachings. Um, maybe two or three years ago it came out. Really excellent book. And so I sent out a link for one of his talks and then also an article that Sharon Salzberg wrote a while back on the nature of compassion. And this person is asking, um, and I'm not understanding something she wrote when writing about not distancing ourselves from pain. And she quotes Sharon, balance between the movement of compassion and the stillness of equanimity is quite subtle, and in every situation we need to look at it. And for me, that statement is really points to the real essence of the practice as I understand it. There's something about the awakening process that depends on exposure, like exposure to Dhamma, the way it is, right? So that compassion is kind of that. Compassion is that heart, that understanding 
that that senses that's appropriate to connect with what we don't want to connect with because it's suffering, mine or yours. Right? We want a stance. Even pity can be our stance. You know, I feel sorry for you for all that suffering you have. But that's, there's some distance there. So compassion is that willingness to show up. And in a way it evokes and even provokes the deepening of wisdom. Because wisdom is required to show up. Otherwise the mind, the heart, is going to be have a defensive stance. Because it will feel threatened by my suffering or your suffering. So that balance between the movement of compassion, movement, let me connect. Let me get close because I care, because I don't want you to be alone, because I want to see if there's something I can do that would be helpful. Let me connect. So that's the movement of compassion. And the stillness of equanimity is this deepening wisdom that that the exposure to causes and conditions, the exposure to life, to circumstance is essentially not a problem. That there's something that remains free, even unmoved, even when facing suffering or joy or anything in between. So equanimity is really that bridge between wisdom and love. It's both seen as a quality of love in the Buddhist tradition and an expression of wisdom. And so wisdom, stillness, you know, the words are never going to be perfect. So when we use a word like stillness, it doesn't mean non-engagement or, you know, passivity. It just means that it's the stillness, it's the non-fear or the heart that isn't burdened by its proximity to suffering. Something remains unmoved, like space, right? So this is... You see the connection from equanimity to space to knowing. We're developing this intuition about what remains unmoved, even as we're living our life, even as we're showing up to the suffering in our own heart and in those around us and doing what can be done. Thank you for these good questions. And uh, in just a minute, um, I see Michelle has already put the link for the Zoom group. I'm, I'll just say a few more things and we'll end in a few minutes. And then those of you who'd like to join in a small group of three, and uh, there's a really wonderful way that Zoom um, has it where they can, Michelle can divide you. So you're just going to appear randomly in a group with two other people. You'll introduce yourself, say your first name at least, decide who's going to go first, and then you can just talk about what you've learned in the class generally. Or one thing in particular that I've been talking about tonight is just this whole path from contraction to release. And it really is a path of the heart opening, becoming boundless and empty. And in that emptiness is really the perfection of peace 
and compassion. Because that's that point that uh, Jen's question about, she was quoting from Sharon's article that I sent out, about the stillness of equanimity. It's really that boundless heart that can't, that can be close and yet remain unburdened, not threatened by suffering. Of course, that's for each of us to uncover in our lives and in our practice. And I'll just end with this poem that I, I read, tend to read a lot because it's really beautiful. First, a little uh, section from the suttas. It's like a, a lullaby. Wherever I go, I am unafraid. Wherever I sleep, I am unalarmed. The nights and days do not burn me. I see nothing in this world that is to be lost. Therefore my heart dwells in goodwill and kindness to all beings until I fall asleep. And then a poem by Persia Gertler, The Healing Time is the title. Finally on my way to Yas. Finally on my way to Yas, I bumped into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them up, and I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, Holy, holy. I love that poem. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.